That was great. Thank you, guys. Good morning. Welcome to Awaken Church. I am excited about uh, having you all join us this week. Um, excited about seeing that really hot girl, Cuban lady up there, too, worshiping. That was really neat. So our family has had an, uh, an interesting week. I just wanted to share a little quick story from that. Um, you know, this past week, my, I have a, a son and three daughters. Josiah's in college, but my other three girls are all in high school together, so senior, sophomore, and freshman. And so this past week, my daughter was invited to the homecoming dance at, our, at their high school. And so as a dad with three girls in high school, I should have been prepared for this, but I really wasn't, especially since it wasn't Talia my senior that was asked, and it wasn't Isabel, my sophomore, that was asked either. It was Danielle, my 13-year-old freshman daughter. And she was asked to homecoming by a senior girl. Yeah. Oh, so that made this kind of an interesting situation. My daughter was asked, and she was really sweet, and she was like, oh, so we're going as friends? And, and she was like, no, we, you'd be my date. And Danielle's like, oh, oh, um, I don't have any money. I can't do that. And the girl's like, that's okay. I just got paid. I'll be happy to pay for your ticket to go. And then Danielle's like, oh, there's my sister. And she runs to Isabel because this was during gym. And our daughter, uh, Isabel, got a chance to, to talk with Danielle, found out what was going on. And Isabel, my awesome daughter decided to go up to this, this young girl and, and uh, tell her that, you know, I appreciate it, but it's not appropriate for you to ask my sister to homecoming. And, you know, I noticed that you guys have been really touchy, and that's probably not all that great either. And just to let you know, Danielle is straight, and we don't want to put her in this confusing situation. And, and the girl looked at Isabel and said, are you mad at me? Because they're friends too. And Isabel was like, no, I'm not mad at you. I just wanted you to know the situation and to, for you to understand that asking out my sister is not appropriate. You didn't know before, but now you know. And that's like, yes, that's my daughter, right? Just protecting your sister, guarding her. And I was, I tell you what, they handled that situation. I was so proud of them when they came home and shared this story. I'm like, I don't even know how I would have handled that. And they handled that so much better than I would. And I share that example, not just because I'm proud of my daughters, but because I think that is an example of what family is supposed to do for each other, right? We protect each other. We guard one another. We strengthen and support one another, especially in times of need, especially when things are confusing and we're not sure what to do. And that's not how a family is supposed to work, but a church family as well. That's what that represents for me. And this is why we've determined to go through this series, Seeing 4D, over the course of the past few weeks. And the goal of this series is to tackle some of the most challenging situations facing the church today and to walk through them with an understanding of what God says about them, but also to how we are to care for people in the midst of them. And as I shared the past couple of weeks, the reason why these issues and topics are so challenging for the church is because they're all personal. 4D, divorce, doubt, depression, and death. 
They're not issues we just kind of put out there and debate for debate's sake. They're personal to us, and they have a personal effect on us and on people that we love. And so this week, we're going to be taking the next step and diving into the topic of depression. And I know this seems like one of those really weird topics to be talking about in church and wondering, gosh, is that even something that's appropriate to talk about in church? But from our perspective, the church should be one of the first places where it's safe for people who are wrestling with depression to find love and to find care. Most of you are familiar with the Gallup Company. They're, they do opinion polls, you know, the Gallup polls and all that fun stuff. And every year, one of the things that Gallup does that's really interesting is they compile what's called a global emotions report. And in that report, they track the feelings and the emotions of more than 154,000 people in 145 countries. And what this poll is designed to do is it's designed to measure the temperature of the world, right? How hopeful or how despairing the world is in that given time. And here's what they recently found. They found that 2017 was the most miserable year ever recorded. In 2017, people reported that they experienced stress, sadness, worry, anger, and physical pain in greater degree than they had ever reported before. The official conclusion was stated by Gallup's managing editor, and what they shared is collectively the world is more stressed, worried, sad, and in pain today than we have ever seen it. 20% of people worldwide share that they are regularly in a state of anger. 23% say that they are regularly experiencing sadness. And nearly 40% share that in the day before, I've experienced a significant amount of stress and or worry. The American College Health Association did a survey of college students, specifically on the issue of depression. They surveyed 100,000 college students. That is a significant study. And what they found is that 11% of them were either diagnosed with or being treated for depression, 11%. 20% of Americans today are taking medication to treat some type of of mental illness, and the largest group of people on medication right now are in the ages of 20 to 44, which is most of the people in this room. So when we talk about this issue of depression and diving in on it and how we wrestle as a church with how to care for people who are wrestling with depression, I want you to realize and understand that this is not an issue that's out there on the margins. It is front and center for a lot of us, either going through it personally or having someone that we love and know and are close to wrestling with it as well. Having said that, depression is a term that can get thrown out quite easily. Uh, we, as Americans, we can kind of do that, right? We take medical terms and mental health issue terms, and we just kind of throw them into our basket of things that we say, and just like if, if we obsess over something, then we're just like, you're OCD or whatever the case may be. And we do that with depression as well. So my Buffalo Bills have not won a game all season long. I am so depressed, says Josh Padgett, you know, in our, in our church. Everything has gone wrong today. I am so depressed. 
Markiplier hasn't uploaded a new video in days. I am so depressed. You know, and this, is, this is the type of way that we can tend to use this term. And we say this stuff all the time, but that's not really accurate, right? Depression, like many other words, is a very concrete and specific definition. And as a former clinician, that's something I certainly know as well. And so I wanted to take a moment and share with you some of the markers of what depression feels like and uh, so that we can understand and have a common understanding of what it means when we use this word properly. So depression feels like uh, persistently sad, empty, or hopeless mood for most of the day, nearly every day. So when I'm persistently sad, I feel like, man, there's an emptiness. I don't feel like things are right. I'm just having this down mood, and I feel it most of the day for most of the days of the week for a significant period of time. Difficulty sleeping or near constant feelings of fatigue or loss of energy. I'm just dragging my feet and I feel like I just everything takes so much work to get done. Loss of interest and pleasure in nearly all activities, especially the ones that we used to take pleasure in most of the day, nearly every day. Feeling worthless or inappropriately guilty on a constant basis. Decreased energy, difficulty concentration, or concentrating, difficulty making decisions on a persistent basis. When you experience significant weight loss or weight gain, with the standards oftentimes about 10% of your weight loss, weight gain, that happens not as a result of my intent. In other words, I'm not trying to, but it's happening. That's also a significant sign. Persistent physical symptoms that don't respond to treatment. So I have headaches, and no matter how much medication or what I do, it's just still constantly there. Digestive issues, chronic pain. And then finally, recurrent thoughts of death and suicidal thoughts and maybe even attempts. When you experience most of these symptoms, at least five of these symptoms on a regular basis, then you qualify technically for some type or some form of depression. This specific type depends on how long you've been struggling with these symptoms and whether or not they are tied to a specific trigger or circumstance. That's going to be the distinguishing feature among them. So as you can see, depression, when we use the word properly, it has a very specific and concrete definition. It's more than having a bad day. It's more than feeling sad or feeling exhausted. It is a devastating and oftentimes debilitating disease that affects over 16 million people in the United States every year. Over 16 million This is not, as I shared earlier, a fringe problem experienced by the minority or the few, right? It is not a Christian problem, and it's not a non-Christian problem. It's a problem that affects every type of person from every socioeconomic class, every race, every gender. And even it was this issue that God's people wrestled with before a name was ever associated with these symptoms or a diagnosis was ever put on it. So I want to take you into some verses in Scripture, give you an idea of what this looked like for them as well. Job was a man in the Scriptures who struggled with depression. And in the book of Job, chapter 30, this is how he describes it. He says, and now my life seeps away. Depression haunts my days. At night, my bones are filled with pain, which gnaws at me relentlessly. This is how it felt for him. It's like, I'm, it's like I'm walking dead. My life is just seeping away. Everything is so miserable. It's all I see. King David 
was a man who experienced the highest of highs and also struggled with the deepest of lows. And he went through multiple seasons of feeling hopeless and helpless, often sharing these feelings in the book of Psalms, which, of which he wrote many of. And he shares in Psalm 42, why am I discouraged? And so it's really neat. I share this passage because you see in there the wrestling he has with his emotions and what he knows by faith. He says, why am I discouraged? Why is my heart so sad? I'll put my hope in God. I'll praise him again, my Savior and my God. Now I am deeply discouraged, but I will remember you, even from distant Mount Hermon, the source of the Jordan. And what I love about this passage is David is wrestling. He's like, I feel this way, and I know the truth. I know that God is amazing. I know that God, is, that God loves me. I know he's the source of my strength, and I will not forget you. I will not turn away from you, but that doesn't change the fact that I feel deeply discouraged and my heart is burdened and sad. David's son, Solomon, also experienced depression, which makes sense since mood disorders often run in families. Solomon wrote the book of Ecclesiastes, which is kind of one of those emo books, right? Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Everything is meaningless. Life is meaningless. That's what Solomon writes in the book of Ecclesiastes. So this problem of depression is nothing new. And the church's response traditionally to this issue of depression has not always been good. Sadly, We've made it our habit at times to be minimizing the problem and focusing on mental illness as being a result of sin or a result of our lack of faith. And that's traditionally how the church has approached this issue. And so if you read your Bible a bit more and if you have a little bit more faith, then God will heal you and God will restore you. And he might. We're not going to mess with God and his sovereignty here. We're simply acknowledging that many times he does not. And that oftentimes this is not a burden that he's going to instantly take away or instantly fix. And if he doesn't, then how are we to handle that? How is the church supposed to handle that? And so I want to start by talking about the church and saying that we have a responsibility to create an environment in the body of Christ where it's okay to talk about issues like anxiety and depression and addiction and so much more. As a church, we need to be able to acknowledge that it's not only the people who are wrestling with this issue that needs care, but also the people who love them and care for them, that they need care, that they need truth, they need encouragement and refreshment as well. So I want to make the transition into saying, okay, now that we understand this, that this is nothing new, there's nothing new under the sun, and that God's people have wrestled with this issue even way back in the days when the scriptures was being written. And so maybe it's no surprise that some of us are wrestling with that issue as well. That takes us to the next question, right? How are we, the church, supposed to care for someone we know or someone we love who is struggling with depression? After all, unless your name is Natalie Clendenin or Jessica O'Brien, you're not qualified to care for someone struggling with depression in a professional way. That being said, that doesn't mean that we can't do anything at all. And so I want to help us kind of craft a path that says, okay, I'm not a professional. I don't know all the ins and outs of how to handle this. I don't even know what it means to diagnose 
depression or mental health issues, but I do know that I have someone I love who is wrestling with this, and I want to care for them. What does that look like? And for you to understand what that looks like, I think it's really important for us to understand two concepts. And the two concepts I want to teach you are, are the issues of, are the concepts of symptoms and severity. Symptoms and severity. So I'll share an analogy that will hopefully help you understand this a bit better. Uh, so imagine that your best friend comes up to you and says, man, my legs hurt, and I don't think I'm going to be able to go to school, don't think I'm going to be able to go to work for the next week. I guess girls don't say, man, my legs hurt. What, what would you say? Sister. No, you wouldn't do that. Never mind. You know what I'm saying, right? Your best friend is going through and they're telling you, my legs hurt, and I just don't know if I'm able to go to school or run my normal life over the co coming week. And for most of us, if we hear that, we understand intuitively that, oh, wait, I need to get a bit more information before I can help them, right? And so if, for example, you know that your friend just got into CrossFit, they spent the last day focusing on squats and lunges, then your response to that statement is probably that you're going to laugh at them, right? <laughs> you dork. That's what you get for jumping into CrossFit. And then we tell them that, you know what, all you need to do is stretch out a little bit, take it a bit easy today, and that should take care of it. And if it continues to be bad or it starts to get worse, then maybe we need to talk about seeing a doctor. But what if you knew that instead of doing CrossFit, your friend was at a party last night and decided to foolishly wear, oh, I don't know, four-inch stiletto heels, hopefully not a guy, but four-inch stiletto heels, and then they decided to walk down this marble staircase holding a drink in one hand and appetizers in the other, and oh, surprise, surprise, they slipped and fell on that marble staircase all the way down, breaking their leg right? That's a different story, right? If you're a good friend and you see your friend down there having a broken leg, you're going to make sure that they're to keep the leg stabilized. You want to get them to a hospital as quickly as you can. And then afterwards, maybe you can laugh about it and say, yeah, that was a pretty stupid thing to do. You can talk about it. And yes, next week, they might be able to go back to work in crutches. Now, what about if that same friend, instead of, you know, doing CrossFit or being at a party, you knew they were in a car accident the night before, swerved off the road, crashed into a tree, and the car smashed and crushed both of their legs. They've been ambulanced, medevaced into a hospital, and now they're in traction, right? Now your response is totally different. There's no laughing or joking about this one. They're not going back to work next week. As a matter of fact, we're praying that they'll be able to walk again someday. Do you understand the difference between these? That the symptoms and the severity makes a difference in terms of dictating how we respond to them and how we care for them. And so you understand the end goal which each of these scenarios is the same. We want to help return a broken person to normal life, whole and healthy. The goal is the same for each of them, but the way we handle that is based on severity and based on symptoms. It determines how we care and how we treat someone, right? I want you to understand that because with physical damage, all of this makes perfect sense. It's intuitive. We get that, right? We see blood and we're like, something needs to happen to care for them. It's completely logical. It's intuitive. But 
For us, oftentimes, when we're talking about someone who's struggling with a mental illness or struggling with depression, we don't always have that same capacity to understand what we're supposed to do next. So here's where I want to help, right? I want to help you get an understanding of, okay, how do I understand when we cross that line and then what I'm supposed to do when this is shared with me? So we're going to share three different thoughts. And I want to start here by saying, number one, listen to them. Listen to them. James 1.19 shares an incredibly insightful thought. He says, understand this, my dear brothers and sisters. You must all be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to get angry. I don't know if women struggle with this, but I know for a lot of men, this is not easy to do, especially the anger part, right? We hear someone having problems, and we want to just jump in and fix it, and if it doesn't get fixed, then we get frustrated and even angry. And what James is saying is be quick to listen. Make that your first reaction. And then when the time is right, speak, and don't get angry about it. Here's what seems really simple. When someone's coming up to you and sharing that, hey, I think I might be struggling with depression, seems so simple to say, of course, I should be listening. But the problem we tend to have with listening is when someone close to us tells us they're struggling with depression and we're hearing it for the first time, our problem tends to be we think we already know you. And it has an effect on how we respond. And so we say things like, but you're such a happy person. How can you be depressed? Or, no, 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 you're not the depressed type. I know you. You're just having a bad day. You're just having a bad week. Shoot, let me tell you about the time I went through something like, you know, and that's where we go. And I'm telling you that's the worst possible response you can have. These are horrible responses. When we think we're trying to help someone feel better, but all they feel is it's someone I love and someone I thought I could trust after telling them this very personal struggle I'm going with, just minimized it and made it small. And then they made it about themselves by telling me a stupid story about how they went through something similar. Now, there are a lot of variations on this response. That was just a couple examples, and hopefully none of you have gone ahead and done that. But the pattern is the same. And this bad pattern is we start with denial, and then we minimize the problem, And then we try and make them feel better by sharing some story about us that tells you that we can relate. If I could draw up the worst possible way you could respond to someone who shares with you they're struggling with depression, this is it. That is the worst possible response you can take for them. Don't do that, please, right? It would be like someone coming up to you and saying, man, my leg is killing me, and you take a baseball bat in your hands and hit them on that leg as hard as you can and say, oh, that one? Yeah, right? None of us would do that, and yet that's what we're doing emotionally when we respond this way to someone who shares with you that they're struggling with anxiety, with depression, with some type of of illness here. So instead, take the time to listen to them. And here's what it means to listen to them. Make eye contact. Give them your full attention. Don't let your eyes get distracted. Don't turn halfway away. I mean, focus on them and give them your full attention. Don't prepare a response in your head, like go into fix-it mode immediately. Don't make a quick judgment. Don't think that, oh, I already know what's happening here. And please don't try to fix them right then and there. Just listen to what they're saying. 
If you get nothing else from this time, and someone comes up to you, or someone you know, or someone you love is wrestling with this, if you hear nothing else here, that you need to take the time to listen first. Even if you have no idea what you're listening for, listen first. Second, after you've taken some time to listen to them, ask some key probing questions. Proverbs 20, verse 5 says, The purposes of a person's heart are like deep waters, but one who is insight draws them out. This is how we are, right? We're deep waters, you know, and we've got all these complex, crazy little things going on inside of us. And someone who is wise, someone who's willing to take the time to listen, is able to thoughtfully bring that out. And so after you've taken some time to listen, after they feel like they've been heard, not like, oh, I already listened for like two minutes, I think I've got the whole story in my head now, right? After they feel like you understand where I'm coming from, then it's time to draw out some additional necessary information. And the reason for these questions is to help you better identify, uh, better get a sense on how you can love and help them better, right? And some of these quick questions that you might want to consider asking is, so if I were just to ask you, how long has this been going on? Right? Have you thought about harming yourself or someone else? Has that ever entered the equation for you? What makes you feel worse? And is there anything that you do that helps you feel better? There's some questions. There's obviously others. It's just a small sampling. But if you're sitting with someone who's wrestling with that, there is a sense that after they feel heard, after they feel understood, then you want to try and get a better handle of what the symptoms are and how severe it is. And these questions will help you do that. Finally, the third step, help them get appropriate help. Help them. So this is what? Help me help you, right? Help them get appropriate help. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 10. For God is not unjust. He will not forget how hard you have worked for him and how you've shown your love to him by caring for other believers as you still do. I love this passage because what does God say right here? He says caring for people is hard work. It's not supposed to be easy. Take the time and give yourself to it. If you're going to care for people, do it well and do it right. And God sees. There are always ways for us to help, and there are always ways for us to love, right? Our faith, God tells us, moves mountains. Our prayers, God tells us, moves the heart of God. The Bible teaches us on how we are to fix our eyes and how we are to fix our minds. And it's important to remember that in the midst of caring for people, that we are not doing this by ourselves, right? God is with us. God will always be a part of sharing the load. The burden will never be completely on our shoulders. And so I think it's important to have that sense of perspective when we're thinking about this, that someone and what they're wrestling, the, the problems and the challenges they're facing are not going to be completely dependent upon you to solve. God is right there in the midst already working. We're just coming alongside to see what God is doing and to be a part of it. Right? That being said, there's an aspect of wisdom and an aspect of skill that I think that we can also learn, right? We can train ourselves in. And that's what 
these steps are designed to impart, to teach you, to give you a little bit of wisdom and a little bit of skill. So going back to our earlier analogy, if someone tells you they have soreness in their legs, you know, take an aspirin. That will kind of help with the pain. Stretch out a little bit. Don't get stiff, right? There's some things that most of us, it's like we've learned. We have a little bit of wisdom on understanding how to help them tackle that. If someone's leg is broken, you know that don't move that leg. Don't shake it around. Don't try to walk, right? Stabilize that leg. Get them in a hospital and get them in a cast. If the legs are smashed, you don't do anything except call 911 and let the professionals take over. That's pretty intuitive because we've taken the time to learn what to do in those situations. Well, when it comes to depression, there are a lot of similarities, but it's not going to be as intuitive. And so I want to help you know what to look for and how to help depending on what God reveals. So I've broken this down in a few steps, and I apologize, because I know some of you guys who really know or are familiar with this stuff is going to be like, man, Frank, I think you're simplifying it quite a bit, and I am. But I'm not going to apologize for it, because my goal in this time is to equip you with simple tools and be able to give you an idea of what do I look for, and when I see it, what do I do? That's what these are designed to help with. First, if the symptoms are mild and there's no trigger. So if someone comes up to you and says that, yeah, I've been feeling really sad and I just, I've, I've felt down, I feel like I'm really lethargic, I just don't have a lot of energy. How long has it been going on? It's been going on for maybe a day, a couple of days. I don't know, it's been a really short period of time. Then what you wanna do in response is take some time to encourage them, help them take a bit of time to figure out as you're listening to them, try and get a sense maybe there's something going on, what might that be? And then you check back in on them in a few days. And if it's the same or it's gotten worse, then maybe you should consider having them, encouraging them to see a counselor. If it's, the, if it's gotten better, fantastic, right? We go through those times and moods and maybe that's okay. So that's mild, no trigger. Someone's having symptoms that are relatively mild. It's not having a hugely disruptive impact on their lives. And it's something that's been over a very short period of time. We're talking about days, right? That's mild, no trigger. Trigger is the next category, right? Trigger is someone who's saying that um, I, I am feeling this way and there is a clear trigger. And so if that's the case, you want to take the time to listen and probe and find out what that trigger might be. I'll help you. Some really common ones are going to be life stressors. So if someone in my family recently died, right? If someone we're close to has gotten divorced, if I've got a child who's gone through something really difficult, there are a lot of different life stressors that can and will affect our mood. That's important to note. Some other ones that maybe not a postpartum is pretty common for a woman after a pregnancy to go through these, I mean, the hormones, right, are going crazy. And so it's not all that uncommon for someone after a pregnancy, after a period of time, to feel like I am going through this mood. I don't know where it comes from. Keep your eye out for that. And for some, believe it or not, a season of the year can have an effect on your mood. When there is a clear trigger, that'll help point to the type of care that they need. And I'll tell you oftentimes that if they are going through depressive feelings that are tied to a specific trigger, there are oftentimes support groups that are a huge help. And sometimes that's what we need is to feel like I'm not going through this alone and I have a place I can go to with people who understand that I can talk with. So look into the option or possibility of support group with them because they're going to be a huge help. 
if it's ongoing, a counselor can help, a doctor might help. Again, severity matters. How serious it is, how impactful it is to their lives will make a difference. Proper medication is also going to be an option. So mild, no trigger. Then you have trigger. And then you have a third one, which is ongoing. Like, I am feeling this way. It's having a significant impact on my life. I feel like I can't really work. I can't concentrate. My, I'm letting jobs just kind of slip through. My boss has started asking me what's going on. It's hard for me to concentrate at school. I completely forgot about a test I had, you know, that it's just disrupting life function. I'm not eating as much. I just don't have any appetite. And I just feel like I'm just constantly dragging it. I have no energy. I don't want to do anything. I just want to lie in bed, and I feel like I just want to lie in bed and cry, and I don't even know why. And it's been going on for weeks. Then that is something where that's going to be a higher degree of concern, right? Listen to them, love them, and then help them schedule an appointment with a professional who is able and equipped to help them. And when I say help them schedule it, I mean literally sit down with them. Work through some different options and say, hey, can I help you? Can I even call them for you and schedule that first appointment? And if possible, do what you can to make sure they make it to that first appointment. That's going to be the best thing that you can do for them. And then finally, the last category, I almost didn't want to put this one in there, but I'm going to. It is complex, but I'll just say that there is a category called urgent, and I pray to God none of you will ever be in this situation. Um, I haven't. It's, it's really not a place you want to be, right? If someone tells you they're considering harming themselves, they're in a place where they're telling you they want to harm someone else, and they've even got a plan for how they're going to do it. So I want to hurt myself. I want to die. Right? I felt like killing myself. And you're asking, right, so what does that mean? Well, it means I have a gun in my room with a bullet. It's got my name on it, and I'm planning on doing it tomorrow night. That's the plan. That's very specific. That's very concrete. And if that's the case, if that's where they are, you need to get immediate help because you are in over your head. Call professional. Call the police if need be. And stay with them until that help arrives or until you're able to get them to a place where they can get professional that was a lot. So let me share this as we close and as we wrap up. Because I know maybe for some of you, gosh, that was interesting, but it was a bit more clinical than I was expecting. And I don't even know if I can do that stuff. And here's what I want to say if, if that might be where you are, right? Caring for people, as I shared earlier, loving people especially people who are going through difficult things, is hard work. There is no getting around it. Our goal with this series, right, Seeing 4D, my goal with you this morning is to understand that when our people, when people we know, when people we love, when it's us, when we're going through difficult things, right, uh, what we want to do is help you to say, let's acknowledge that it's difficult. Let's acknowledge what God says about it. And then at the same time, let's, as a church, come together and understand what the work looks like for us to come alongside and help you and serve you effectively so that your work will not be in vain. Does that make sense? That's what we're trying, that's the purpose of the equipping, is for you to feel like, I know caring for people is hard work. I know it's going to take, it's draining, but you know what's even more draining? 
not knowing what you're doing at all. And so what we wanted to do, whether it's with the topic of divorce or doubt or now depression, is to come alongside as a church body and say, all right, let's give you some direction and focus on here are some things that you might want to consider doing when you're caring for someone who's struggling with something difficult. This is what it looks like to care, right, as the body of Christ. But there aren't any shortcuts. This is not designed to make caring for people and loving for people easier, right? There's no shortcuts around our personal investment. You can't farm out love and care. It's going to be exhausting work at times, physically, emotionally, and spiritually. And yet, this is what God has called us to do. This is what it looks like to be part of the family of Christ, to be part of the body of believers. There is a cost to living this rewarding, blessed Christian life. In the book of John, Jesus emphasizes this when he shares in John 13, verse 34 and 35. He says, so now I'm giving you a new commandment. So I know what you've learned in the past. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus is saying, those are good. Do not neglect doing good, but I'm going to give you something more specific and more concrete, something that you need to wrap your minds around, right? A new commandment. So now I'm giving you a new commandment. Love each other. And here's how. Just as I have loved you, you should love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. What is Jesus saying here? He's saying, do you know what the standard is for your loving and caring for people? It's the way I've done it. That's the standard. Love the way Jesus is loved. And when you love this way, that is how the world is going to know that you're mine. That is going to be what compels the people in the world to say maybe there is something to this God and to this Jesus guy. And that is how we bear witness the love of Christ in our lives. You can't read these verses and imagine that it's supposed to mean I'm supposed to love people in my life as long as it's convenient and doesn't force me to go out of my way. That is, there's no reading of these passages that will tell you that. Another one's found in the book of Galatians. Galatians chapter 6, verses 2 to 3. Share each other's burdens. That is what we do as a family. We share the burdens of one another. And in this way, obey the law of Christ. If you think you're too important to help someone, you're only fooling yourself. You are not that important, right? This is the law of Christ, is to share one another's burdens. And if you don't want to be inconvenienced that way, or if you're thinking, man, that's for other people to do and not for me, what God is telling you is, no, 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 no. You are not too good for that. I don't care what your title is, what your role is, or what you've done in your past. This is for you, and God's saying you are not so important that you can farm this responsibility out. If I have put them in your life, then you are the one, right? You are one of the people I've assigned the task of caring for and loving them. Brothers and sisters, not only are we capable of loving and caring in this way, but we've been commanded to do it. And the goal of this series is to say, I acknowledge that, and if we're going to do it, let's do it right. That's what this series has been all about, helping you understand what these difficult issues look like and how they get tackled in the church of God in both spiritual and practical ways. And as a church, we've been blessed, right? You don't have to do this alone. 
We've got some trained counselors. We've got some wise leaders. We've got some experienced caregivers that we can lean on. So don't feel like you're in this alone because you're not. We're in this together. And, of course, the Lord is always with us, always with us. He's already at work in their lives, and he is more than we need. Amen? Let's wrap up. Lord, thank you so much for this morning and for this time. And to be able to tackle an issue like depression, that is, that's so crazy to be able to imagine talking about this and sharing about this in the midst of the church body. And yet, God, more and more people are just struggling and wrestling and feeling trapped, feeling enslaved. And God, as the church, we want to be that place where hurt, broken, and damaged people can come and find help, find healing, find love, find hope, and find restoration. And to realize that comes from you first and foremost and is oftentimes expressed through your people. And God, I pray that as awaken as the body of believers that we would do this well. And more than doing it well, that it would begin with a willingness to come alongside people and who are in pain, who are hurting, whether they be our family, our friends, our coworkers, our classmates, whoever that might be, and say, I am willing to share this burden, to share this load with you. God, we thank you for your goodness and grace. We thank you that not only have you called us to care, but you've also called us to establish good limits and healthy limits. And I pray that that was something that's communicated this morning, God. We are not to be anyone's rescuers, and yet we are also not to stand on the sidelines and do nothing. And Lord Jesus, I pray that you would equip and empower us, and as you're bringing people to mind and to the forefront of our hearts, I pray that you give us wisdom, discernment, and the capacity in our lives to be able to love them the way you have loved us, that we would follow the example that you have set. We pray this in the name of your precious son, Jesus. Amen.